I want to talk with you today about something that some of you are right away going to connect with and others of you, hopefully the Holy Spirit will uh, maybe warm your heart as we talk. And that is a passion to represent Christ in the world we live in. Representing Christ in a culture that is post-Christian, whether we like it or not, that is not Christian anymore. And uh, I want to talk with you beginning here about some tensions that we experience. I think some reasons that um, maybe in the past you've tried to represent Christ well to a neighbor or a coworker or a relative. And we're going to start here with some common tensions that we often experience when we do that, when we step out and really, we really do try and show Christ to the people around us. And here's the first tension that I've noticed and experienced. Sometimes it seems that we're speaking different languages. Have you experienced this? Uh, sometimes when you're talking with someone who's an unbeliever and you, you really, you want to show them God's love and his grace and his goodness, but it, it just seems like you're maybe speaking different languages. I started to notice this when I worked as a, a journalist in a mainstream or secular newsroom. Uh, about seven years ago, right before I became a pastor, I started noticing some changes uh, in the culture and the language where the way I spoke was different from the way my editors spoke. Here's a few examples. Um, is it abortion or is it reproductive rights? Well, depends on what language you're speaking, right? Uh, here's another one. If, if uh, someone, because of their religious beliefs, uh, thinks that um, homosexuality is wrong, and then they get in trouble and they get fired for that, uh, is that an issue of religious freedom, or is it an issue of bigotry and prejudice? Well, it depends on what language you're speaking. Is it gay marriage, or is it human rights? And as a journalist, I started to notice, you know, um, the facts depend, the, the facts are unchanging, but as we deal with people, we're sometimes speaking a different language. I was in Florida this last week, Bible Belt Territory, tons of big Baptist churches, right? And I was speaking with a mom who has two daughters who are college-aged, and she came up to me, and um, she was very concerned because both of her girls grew up going to uh, the big Baptist church there and grew up going to Sunday school and all sorts of neighborhood Bible classes. But right now, both of her daughters are telling her, because of her views on um, some moral issues of the day, that she's a bigot and that she's prejudiced and that she's closed-minded. And she's, she's very frustrated. Have, have you experienced this tension in your life, either as you're reading or watching the news or as you're talking to a neighbor or a relative? Here's another tension. When we start to speak and we, we really, we're just, we're trying to show God's love and his good news. Here's another tension. Increasingly, we are prejudged by people who seem closed to reasonable dialogue. Uh, have you experienced this? Or maybe you're just so afraid of experiencing it that you're not really engaging with people anymore. Uh, I've, I've experienced this where, you know, you're just, you're just genuinely trying to reason and it just seems like there's a, a prejudgment against you because you're uh, a Christian. Here's another thing I've noticed. Sometimes I have really great answers to questions that people aren't asking. <laughs> right? 
<clears throat> sometimes I've got these, these great, you know, these great answers about why Christianity is the, the solution to all the problems in life. And, but the people I'm trying to give the answers to, they're, they're more concerned about what Miley Cyrus is doing than about all the pain and evil in the world. Well, all these tensions really funnel down to one central question, and it's this. How do we represent Christ in a post-Christian culture? How do we represent Christ in a culture where assumptions have changed, where values have changed, where the fabric of society is, is rapidly tearing and reshaping, where morality now does not come from objective truth, but it's kind of crowdsourced, you know? What does the Twitter mob say is wrong? That's what's wrong. That's the world that we live in. I see this a lot as I travel around the country speaking in, in different cities. And I come back to Prescott, and honestly, we're a little isolated here in Prescott. Um, we're quite a bit isolated from how much the world is changing in the larger metropolises, especially on the coasts. Um, and I think we can have a tendency in a city like this to just bury our head in the sand and say, well, because I don't want it to change, I'm just going to pretend it's not changing. During World War II, Edsel Ford, the son of Henry Ford, repurposed all the uh, Ford factories and, and built actually the largest factory in the world at the time to build American airplanes for the World War II effort. And he had these cufflinks, and in Latin they said, all things change. In other words, there's two approaches I can take to life. I can bury my head in the sand and bunker down and just complain about all the change, and wish it wasn't happening, or I can acknowledge that God and his sovereignty and providence placed me at this time in world history and this culture for a reason. And that reason is to show his heart to the people around me. So just because the people around me are changing and it's getting harder to do that is no reason to give up and quit on the reason that we were created. So we're talking today about resurrecting the art of ambassadorship. Resurrecting the art of ambassadorship. And we get this from a text in God's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look into God's unchanging word to give us direction about how to show Christ in a rapidly changing culture around us. So as you're turning into 2 Corinthians 5, let me just give you a few examples of how culture's rapidly changing, okay? If you wanted to watch TV news in the 1960s or the 1970s, uh, and you lived anywhere in the 50 United States, you had three options, okay? You had ABC, NBC, and CBS. And those three options were nearly identical when you watched them, okay? They had the same format, they all had a, a white male news anchor, and they all reported on the same stories, okay? That, that's symbolic of a, a culture that sociologists would call monolithic, meaning there are values and assumptions that not necessarily everyone in the United States had at that time, but the vast majority of Americans shared a lot of values and assumptions. And coming out of a, a history where the majority of Christians uh, or the majority of Americans were fairly active Christians. A lot of those values and assumptions had some Christian uh, foundations to them. Well, nowadays, if people want to watch the news, where do they go? Um, chances are they're not watching it on TV. They're probably watching it on the internet. If they are watching it on TV, uh, they have dozens of choices. If they're watching it on the internet, they have hundreds of choices. 
And, and as a result, uh, that's just one example of the way in which America is no longer this monolithic block of shared values. Yeah, it, it's, it's separating into these smaller groups that we'll talk about in a moment here. God placed us here in human history to show his heart to the different groups that we'll interact with in our lives. So let's read about this unchanging truth, unchanging calling for us in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's start in verse 18. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We'll park on this verse for just a minute. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. What's the Apostle Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about what Christians normally call the gospel. It's what Jesus called the good news. It's the truth that all of humanity, no matter how good we think we are, we are all born as sinners separated from God because of the choices of our ancestors. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve. That sin has separated humanity from God. That we all have a sinful bent and we're all separated from God. And the only way to be reconciled or made right with God the Father, our creator, is by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who didn't save us from a distance, but who came down among us, who, who took upon human flesh, who humbled himself, walked around in the world we live in. God reconciled us, if you're a believer in Christ, that's who Paul's talking to. God has reconciled us through our faith in Christ what did Jesus say after he rose from the grave? And then he went to heaven. He told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he essentially said, now you are my presence on earth. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. See, Jesus is still on planet earth in his people. We are the body of Christ. We are the presence of God, filled with his Holy Spirit, guided by his word. And we are the only way that the 7 billion people in the world, all those who don't yet know Christ, we are the only way that they will be reconciled to God. Why? Because God has now given us this ministry. This is a huge calling. I mean, when you really think of it in the big view of all of human history and all of humanity who God designed to be in perfect relationship with him, all of humanity being ripped away from that by sin and God in love looks down and he sends the second part of the Trinity, Jesus, down among us to bear the penalty for our sin so that every human being who wants to be restored to God can. And Jesus started the ministry and then he handed it off to us. And that's why we're on planet earth. It's not to pretend like this is heaven because all our bodies are gonna die here. None of us are going to live past the year 2100, okay? All our bodies are going to... This is not our home, and we're here to continue the ministry that Jesus started of reconciling, making right people who are far from God, showing them the heart of God. Let's look now at the next verse, 19. <laughs> All right. That God was reconciling the world... To himself in Christ. Remember John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. No longer counting people's sins against them. That's what happens when we trust in Christ. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So in case we missed it in verse 18, we get it again here. Okay? 
He, not only has he given it to us, he has committed it to us. He has entrusted it to us. Let's look at the next verse now. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal to the world, to all who are far from him, through who? Through us. What responsibility we have. We put it this way on your outline, that he has entrusted to us. He has entrusted to us his global message of reconciliation. Now, I want to run a scenario here with you. I want you to imagine that uh, you get a call from the President of the United States, okay? And he says, um, we need a good ambassador to India. Uh, the country of India is now the, uh, it's soon going to outpace China as the fastest growing economy in the world. India is a strategic partner for the United States. Uh, I would like you to go and be our ambassador to India and form ties with them, and, and, and create relationships with them. Now, let's just say that happened, and let's say that you accept it, okay? Heaven, what kind of things do you think you might do if you were the ambassador to India? Uh, do you think maybe you would visit? You think maybe you'd go over there and, and visit the country that you're an ambassador to? Uh, do you think you'd get to know the people? Do you think you'd get to know a little about their culture, a little about their history, uh, if your job was to be the ambassador to India, do you think maybe you'd learn a little bit of their language, at least enough to make them feel comfortable when talking with you? Are you guys running this scenario in your minds? Are you actually thinking about the kind of things you would do? Now think about this. Not the president of the United States, but the creator of humanity has called you and has said, I need someone who will be an ambassador. I need someone who will show my heart and my eternal plan to people who are far from me. Well, if we want to be good ambassadors, we're going to have to understand the people around us. And part of that is this, understanding tribalism in a post-Christian United States. Understanding tribalism, okay? Remember when we were talking about the network news on TV back in the 1960s and 70s, a somewhat monolithic culture where the vast majority of people shared a lot of the same assumptions and values. All sociologists agree that that era is over, and many sociologists use this term tribalism to describe where the United States is now. And that is that among the 320-some million people living in the United States right now, um, we're all in these different little tribes. And uh, depending on what tribe you're in, you're going you're gonna to pick where you get your news from and what radio you listen to. And, and every tribe has its own subculture, okay? So you guys in here, whether you knew it or not, you're part, most of you, of the evangelical tribe, okay? And, and the evangelical tribe is a tribe that's having a little bit of difficulty right now in the culture because we have gone in the last 15 years from being the majority tribe to all of a sudden being a minority tribe. And there's some things we did when we were the majority tribe that now other tribes would like to get back at us for. That's just the reality of it, okay? That's part of why you sometimes feel prejudged if you're actually getting out there and talking with people about Jesus. So we're a tribe. What are some other tribes? Well, there's the LGBT tribe, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. That, that's that's a, a tribe now with its own subculture. There's the uh, militant atheist tribe, right? There's the less militant kind of agnostic tribe. 
Boy, here in Prescott, isn't there a hippie tribe? Has anyone seen the hippie tribe in Prescott? That's a tribe here, okay. There's all these tribes, dozens, probably hundreds of tribes, uh, including ethnic tribes that migrate to the U.S. We're suddenly living in this very multicultural society. And again, in Prescott, you don't see it as much, but it is the reality of the vast majority of the United States, and it's the reality here, too. Uh, in fact, I was talking yesterday with a really neat guy. If you want to write down his name, his name is Abdu, A-B-D-U, Murray. Abdu Murray worked with Ravi Zacharias, and uh, Abdu Murray was a Muslim for years and became a Christian and an attorney. He's a really neat resource for understanding how uh, Muslims think. And Abdu Murray and I were talking about this, tribalism within the U.S., and he told me about uh, that he was recently speaking at a church in South Dakota, and he was expecting it to be very not diverse, And when he got done speaking, uh, an African-American woman came up to him and started speaking to him in Arabic. And it turns out she was from Algeria in in South Dakota. Okay, this this is the world that we live in now. Uh, And that's a a fairly dramatic example of a, a foreign tribe among us. What we haven't realized is that our, uh, your, your nephew or your grandchild who came out as gay or your coworker who's an atheist or your neighbor who just doesn't really like Christians, that they're also from foreign tribes. Even though they're speaking English, in some ways they're speaking different languages. They're operating from a different culture with different values and different assumptions, So how do we take the unchanging message of God's word? This is not a time in history to get less biblical. It's a time to get more biblical. How do we take the unchanging good news of God's word to people who no longer share our values and assumptions? To talk about that, we're going to talk about adopting the strategies of successful cross-cultural missionaries. Man, Josh did a good job last week having words that were under eight syllables, or I'm sorry that these are long words, okay? Here's what I mean. Successful cross-cultural missionaries. We in the American church are really good at cross-cultural communication outside of the United States. When we send a missionary to Africa or to Papua New Guinea, we are very sophisticated and very good at being ambassadors to those tribes. What we haven't realized is that our own neighbors and children and grandchildren are now also foreign tribes. So we can learn, this This all might sound intimidating, but there's actually some very, very simple things that you can do to start effectively being an ambassador for Christ, showing the goodness of God and the good news of God to people around you who maybe you have felt intimidated by, or you've just, you've tried and failed, or because you failed once in the past, you know there's these people God put in your life and you just think, why even bother? Not going to get through, or they're just going to not like me, okay? Here, so, so I'm going to go. These aren't all on your outline, but you can jot some of these down. I'm going to run you through a scenario here, okay? If you were called of God to be an ambassador to a tribe in Africa that had never heard of Christianity before, what would the good missions organizations train you to do? Well, let's say that this tribe is cannibalistic, okay? They eat people, all right? And let's say they're, uh, they're polygamists. Not only do they eat people... You know, most of the guys in the tribe have like 10 or 12 wives, okay? 
Well, for sure, here's what not to do, okay? You don't show up to that tribe on the very first day and say, hey, God says that it's a sin that you're eating people, and it's a sin that you have 10 wives, and this is a sin, and that's a sin. If you show up and do that, are they going to have you over for dinner? Are they going to have you for dinner? Okay? So, so we know this. So when we send a missionary like Jonathan Koff, who was part of this church body and has been in Papua New Guinea for 20 years now, successfully being a cross-cultural missionary, what do, what do successful cross-cultural missionaries do? Well, they begin by showing God's love through undeniable actions. Not words yet, but actions. So uh, very likely they'll dig a well or they'll build a medical clinic or they'll bring in some construction equipment that the people in the village never had. What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Well, they're, they're showing God's undeniable love through the universal language that breaks all culture barriers of, of actions, of humble service, of, of providing. And so that tribe gets to know, wow, this very strange person from this very strange culture cares about us. And as a successful cross-cultural missionary starts to do that, then they start to learn the language of the people to whom they're trying to show the heart of God. They don't assume that those people know what the word sin means. They don't assume that those people know what the word God means or the Bible or marriage. They assume that being from different cultures, we may have very different definitions for each of these words. So they show God's love through undeniable actions. They learn the language. And third, they build relationships. As they're showing God's love through actions, as they're learning the language, they're building relationships. It's only then that a successful missionary, number four, shares the good news. Sharing it in a way that assumes two things. One, I assume they don't know anything about Christianity. And the footnote or two on it is this. If they have been exposed to Christianity, I'm going to assume that it was a bad experience. Because here's the sad reality. While some of us work very hard to represent Christ well, there are a lot of people who wear the name Christian who don't represent Christ well. And you might think, well, I'm not hateful toward that group of people, so they shouldn't say that Christians are hateful. But there's a very good chance they encountered a Christian who was. And so... It's just the same as Africa and Papua New Guinea. You assume they haven't been exposed to Christianity. And if they have, maybe it was a bad experience. And, and so you define terms. You don't assume that they mean the same thing you mean when you say sin or marriage or whatever else. And then you share the good news. What's the good news? Well, well because you've built a relationship on a pattern of good deeds... You, you're able to tell them, hey, all these things I've done for you, they're because of a creator God who loves us. And he's done these kind of things for me. And now he sent me here to show you his love. And I know that I'm not a perfect representative of him, but I'm here to let you know that God who created you loves you. And he says that not just you, but everyone in the world is separated from him by sin. I was separated from God by sin. Everyone was. And he sent me here to let you know that he wants to be reconciled to you. 
In fact, he loves you so much, he sent his son to die and take the penalty for all the mistakes that I've made and you've made. And if you want to trust in him and believe in him, he would love to be made right with you. He would love to adopt you into his family. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we're to be known for, by the way. And if you survey Americans and you say, what are evangelical Christians about? 20 out of 20 answers will be things that we are against. Not a single one will be that we are for loving people or for reconciling people to God. That's just the reality. If you survey Americans, that's their impression of us. However it happened, that's the way it is. So, you're a missionary in Papua New Guinea. You dig them a well. You learn enough of their language. You build a relationship. Then you share the good news of salvation. Now in the tribe, some of the people accept that. They, they make a profession of faith in Christ. Others do not accept it. What would be the biblical thing to do for the people who have not accepted it? Would you go to people who don't know Christ and tell them, hey, you need to stop sinning? Well, if you do, you're going to have a hard time. Because if you're biblical, scripture says that every one of us is powerless to say no to sin apart from the cross. Scripture says that we're slaves to sin. That the God of this world has blinded our eyes and darkened our foolish minds. So anytime we go to non-Christians and expect them to live like Christians, not only we're going to frustrate them, we're going to frustrate ourselves, and we're actually demeaning the cross of Christ when we do that. Because we're essentially saying... That whole atonement thing, that whole being set free from the slavery of sin thing, it, that's, those are just words. You, you can do better on your own. So the people who do accept Christ, we begin to disciple them. That now you've been set free from the, the slavery of sin. Now you don't have to eat people anymore. Now I'm not sure what to do about these 10 wives, but we got to figure out some way to care for all of them and try and line this up with God's plan, Okay. For the people who accept the message of the cross, now they're freed from the slavery of sin and we get to disciple them into newness of life and freedom of life. The people who don't accept it, how does scripture say we should expect them to act? We should expect them to act like pagans because they are pagans. We should expect them to act like slaves to sin because that's what they are. And we should continue to pray for them and love them and continue cycling through, showing them God's good, goodness through undeniable actions, continuing to learn their language, knowing that some of them may never make that decision. Here's a verse if you want to write this down, 1 Peter 2 verse 12. See, we now live in a hypersexual, a hyper, hypersexual culture and a pagan culture. And especially if you grew up between the 1940s and the 1980s, that's kind of new. I mean, you've seen it developing, but it's not what you grew up with. This is a hyper, hypersexual, pagan, pluralistic society. It's new to us. It was not new to the New Testament Christians. It was the norm in Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia. Those were all hypersexual, pagan cultures. And God says this through the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Do you get that? 
Live such good lives among the pagans. Are you among any pagans in your life? Jesus was the friend of sinners. Could you be accused of that ever? Peter says, don't live your good deeds under a bushel. Live them among the pagans so that even when they accuse you of doing wrong, in other words, by following God's plan, it doesn't mean you won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean you won't be accused. You still will be. But you'll know that you're following God's plan. You're showing them God's heart. They'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2.15 For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. You ever feel nowadays when people are lobbing accusations at Christianity like it's just foolishness? And we have this instinct to put them in their place with our words. God says, put them in their place with your deeds. Show them what Christians are like. That's how you silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You could call it this, the apologetic of relationship. Uh, Ravi Zacharias and these other great guys, they talk about apologetics. That is giving a reason or a defense for our faith. And there are incredible volumes of sound intellectual material that demonstrate Christianity explains the world around us. Christianity explains why groups like ISIS exist. Christianity explains the tension in your marriage. Christianity explains why we tend to spend more money than we make. Christianity explains everything about life. It's this incredible system that Isaac Newton and so many other brilliant minds said, that's it. That explains the world. And we can give people lots of facts and reasons, and we've got some incredible minds in the Christian community, but you know what the greatest apologetic is? It's not all of that. The greatest apologetic is relationship. That's why when Paul the Apostle wrote to young Timothy, the pastor, he said, Timothy, you know the faith because you know me through our relationship. And Timothy, you know Jesus because you knew your grandma and grandma. It was through those relationships Jesus said in John 13, 35, that our greatest apologetic would be our love, our radical love. He said, this is how all people will know that you're my disciples, because of your love for each other. The apologetic of relationship. Rick Warren has talked about the reality that the church is the body of Christ, and the body's supposed to have hands and all these other parts, but in the United States, sometimes we're just a giant mouth. Right? We like to talk. And there's a time for that. But let's not forget about that fruit of the Spirit called self control. There's a time to not talk, there's a time to listen, to get to know people. To build a credibility so that when you do talk, it matters. Reality is most of us, if someone starts arguing with us about what we believe, we're going to just get combative and argue just because we want to win the argument, right? That's human nature. And if we go up to people in foreign tribes around us and we just start to challenge them, and well, of course they're going to argue back. But if you start to serve them, love them, listen to them, find out what they're concerned about, pray for them, read God's word as you're going through your devotions and find, wow, he's really concerned about this. God's word speaks to that. God, is that where you want me to start to, to, to let him see your heart, that you've got a solution to that? 
So question, which strategy of successful cross-cultural missionary do you most need to adopt? Sorry, that's so wordy. But remember that scenario we played out if you were going to Papua New Guinea or Africa? There's, there's all these, you know, showing God's love through undeniable actions, learning the language, building a relationship, then presenting the gospel, then expecting the people who reject it to keep living like pagans, and then helping the people who accepted it start to live like Christians. Which one of those could you most use as you interact with the foreign tribes around you? And, and here's another question. Let's get really personal on this because who are some of the foreign tribes around you? Maybe not even the whole tribe, but the, the individual. Who's the relative in your life? Who's the coworker? Who's the neighbor? Who's the friend through a hobby? God intentionally put them in your life. And, and because of their antagonism to Christianity, you've, you've kind of, I don't know what to do there. But today, God brought you here to realize God placed them in your life so you can be an ambassador to them. Who's that person? And then of these, of these steps that we ran through in the scenario, which of those, are you in that phase where you need to kind of close your mouth for a while and start showing them God's love through undeniable actions? Are you in that phase where you need to listen and actually learn what do they mean when they say these words? And if I say the word sin, what do they think it means? Oh, wow, that's not at all what I meant. I find a lot of Americans think if you call them a sinner, they think that everyone else is not a sinner and you're singling them out. That's not what we believe, but that's what they, they, we know that we're all sinners, but that's an assumption that we're taking into the conversation that they don't have. So which of these steps could you, as you're praying for that person in your life, God, I want to be an ambassador for you. And this stuff, I hope it doesn't sound too complicated because it's really just saying before God, God, I do want to be your ambassador. That's why you placed me on earth. I do want to do this. Will you help me be an ambassador to so-and-so? He'll help you if you ask him. Part of this is changing our definition of success, okay? Changing our definition of success. Here's why I think a lot of us give up on being ambassadors. We think it's on us to get them to make a decision for Jesus. And that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And so you fail a few times and then you just give up. But here's the thing, scripturally, God does not call you to turn that person's heart to him. You couldn't do that if you wanted to. God does not put that pressure on you. All God does call you to do is to unveil his heart to the person, okay? If, you, if I unveil the heart of God to the foreign tribes around me, then I'm a success. Doesn't matter if they accept it or not. I'm just called to unveil it. How they respond that's God's business, that's their business, okay? My calling is to show his heart to them and to do it according to his plan and to not worry so much and be such a control freak about how it turns out. Think about this with Jesus. Almighty God, who could have reconciled us to himself just by some zap from heaven, right? Instead, he came down among us. Think about this. Jesus lived on earth for 30 years, 30 years, living among us, listening, praying to the Father before he started to open his mouth and declare that the kingdom of heaven was here. So repent and believe. 30 years. And even then as Jesus went around, 
constantly showing the goodness of the Father through healings, through providing food. The good deeds and the good news. Faith comes by believing and hearing. We gotta have both. And in American Christianity, there's a tendency to sever them. There's some American Christian groups that they do a bunch of good deeds and they never do share the good news. And there's other American Christian groups that, hey, we're just gonna, we're just gonna preach to people as if they don't even have a body with physical needs, <laughs> as if we're not ambassadors. We're just gonna, hey, here's the facts, right? What did Jesus do? What are we called to do? Both. We show the heart of God through good deeds and good news together. And I hope this takes some pressure off for you. Again, this is a time for us to get more biblical as Christians living in this kind of society. God never puts the pressure on a person, you go save that person. We couldn't if we wanted to. God just says, show my heart to them. I've got a big plan. It's eternal. I'm calling you to show my heart to them. Here's a text that helps us understand that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7. Paul's talking here to a church that's all worked up about who's our pastor going to be? Is it going to be Apollos or is it going to be Paul? We want this one, we want that one. And Paul says, guys, it is not about the humans, okay? And he says this, I planted the seed. In other words, I was the first one who got to tell you about Jesus. But then Apollos came and watered it. But, but it's not about me or Apollos. It was God who has made it grow. So neither the person who planted the seed or the one who watered it is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So, so this is the principle. The pressure is not on you for the person to change their life, make the decision, become a Christian. God only calls you to accurately show to them what a Christian looks like, to accurately unveil to them what the heart of God is. Does that take a little pressure off? So what's the best way to do this? You know, should we pool all of our resources and um, get like a, maybe like a two-minute Super Bowl commercial? <laughs> what if we got a, all the churches get together and we pool our money, we get a two-minute Super Bowl commercial and we get like the best communicator in the church right now. And, 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 and we get him or her to give this two-minute presentation of the gospel, and we all pay, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And it's like, wow, today half the country saw that. Well, th that might be cool. But is that God's ultimate plan? His plan is actually you guys and me. And I'm going to get nerdy on you here for a second, okay? I want to introduce you to a sociology concept called the long tail, okay? This is called the long tail. This is from the editor of a magazine named, called Wired Magazine. And this started off as, uh, this is actually a business principle, okay? Here's the idea of the long tail. This is the head, this is the tail, okay? The head is the best sellers. So in books, you've got your New York Times bestsellers. In music, you've got your top 40, right? These are, these are the big hits, all right? Now, from the 1950s to the 1990s, really to 2000, in a fairly monolithic culture, companies could make a killing by just selling these. So a radio station would just play the top 40 songs. They didn't play any of these songs down here in the tail. They didn't have to. It was a monolithic culture. Okay? Blockbuster video store. You guys remember that? Blockbuster didn't have any of these videos down here in the tail. They just had the best sellers, the new releases, and they made tons of money. You guys remember Borders Bookstores? Borders Bookstores did not have all these books down here. Borders just had, you know, the top 1% of books. 
And in a monolithic culture, that works. Why has Borders been replaced by Amazon? Why has Encyclopedia Britannica been replaced by Wikipedia? Why has Blockbuster gone bankrupt like Borders and been replaced by Netflix? Because in a tribal culture, the tail matters. And the reality is that more and more Americans are living in, in the tail. They're not buying the best-selling book or listening to the top 40 song. They're listening to something that meets them where they are in their tribe. What does this mean for evangelism? Don't worry, this is biblical in the end, okay? <laughs> not just nerdy, it's also biblical. Here's what it means for evangelism. Here, the head, that's a mass event like a Billy Graham crusade where you get everyone together and because it's a fairly monolithic culture, there's a dynamic speaker who can connect to tens of thousands of people. And that's great. But all the other industries have realized the way to really get people now is through their tribalism. Would you believe that was God's plan for us all along? <laughs> Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when God comes and says, you are going to be my witnesses in all the earth. Does he say it to just the 12 apostles? No, he says it to all the ordinary Christians. We live down here, right? None of us are ever going to be Billy Graham. That's okay. We live down here and we're called to reach the people down here. And the people who live in the tail, the people from foreign tribes, Billy Graham can't reach them. Luis Palau can't reach them. Chuck Swindoll can't reach them. But you can. Maybe not the whole tribe, but the one or two from that tribe that God has placed in your life. I'll give you a few references if you want some scriptural proof for this. Acts 1.8, Acts 8 verse 4, Acts 11.19 through 21, and there's a lot more. I want to close by telling you the story of a man who lived a blue-collar life, a man who never would have gone to hear Billy Graham speak, a man who worked on a Ford assembly line in Ypsilanti, Michigan in the late 1930s, not an educated man, would have been intimidated to go to a big Christian event. But on that Ford assembly line, there was a guy next to him who got to know him, who started to show God's goodness to him, and who ultimately shared the good news with him. This, this man then became a Christian, and he decided then to become a pastor. And as a result of that one person sharing the good news with him, he started multiple churches, Christian schools, literally thousands of disciples who've been made because one guy named Earl Peters on a Ford assembly line took the time to be an ambassador. And this man raised his children for the Lord, and taught his children to raise their children for the Lord. And that's who I am. This is my grandpa, okay? I, I would not be using the gifts and skills I have today within Christianity if in 1930-something, a guy named Earl Peters take the time to be an ambassador on a Ford assembly line. So as we close, I just want you to think, you might think, I, I'm not some genius, smart person. I'm not, you don't have to be. You've got the Holy Spirit in you. If Earl Peters could do it uh, with greasy hands on a Ford assembly line, you can do it in the pharmacy where you work, in the school where you work, in the retirement community that you're part of, with your kids and grandkids. So as we close, I'm going to pray for us. And my challenge for you is just to go from here and say, God, 
I do want to be your ambassador. I'm intimidated by it. I don't know for sure where to start. Pastor John confused me this morning, but I, I do want to be an ambassador. Uh, can I pray that for you guys now? Father, I thank you for these men and women in this room. They're placed here by you in all of human history. You could have had us born 200 BC or 1200 AD. You could have had us born in India or Africa, but you placed us here, the wealthiest church in world history, at a time of global communication, and there are tribes bumping up against us. Father, will you forgive us for being selfish and comfortable and just being upset that the world is changing around us? Will you change our hearts that we'll realize we are here to show your unchanging heart to this changing world? And Father, I pray as we go from here that by your Holy Spirit, you'll bring to our minds the names of individuals in our lives who are from foreign tribes, even though they're Americans. They're foreigners to us and they've got different language and culture. Lord, will you use us to be ambassadors to them? Will you help us to show your good love to them through good deeds? Will you help us to be quiet and listen and hear and learn their language? And Lord, when the time comes to show you, help us to explain that good news and we trust you to grow things, but we will water and we will plant. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.